Thou get the death of cold on Ilkley Moabatat. Thou's going to get the death of cold. Thou's going to get the death of cold on Ilkley Moabatat. On Ilkley Moabatat. On then we My brother-in-law, um, Maritalina, his first visit home was an occasion for great excitement, meeting an Englishman for the first time. Uh, we prepared the house, the usual bit of tidying up was done, and eventually they arrived. And my first impression of Ernie was I couldn't understand scarcely what you were saying. He has a Yorkshire accent. And I suppose the poor lad, looking back on it, he felt the same about us. I'm very fond of Ernie. He um, makes a great attempt at singing. And uh, I admire him for that because, uh, well, he won't win any medals for singing, but at least he tries something that I never try because I'm not good enough, but he tries anyway. I suppose my father was singing, and he asked him to sing, probably. And this song goes on and on and on. And uh, Ernie was looking down at the ground and giving it all its best, went right into the bitter end. And uh, I never heard him singing any other song. And I suppose that's, the, that's what we thought about his singing. He wasn't asked to repeat it. But um, he volunteered. He made the effort, anyway. Worms will come and eat thee up on Ilkley Moabatat. Then all the worms will eat thee up. Then all the worms will eat thee up on Ilkley Moabatat. On Ilkley Moabatat. On Ilkley Moabatat. I'd never experienced darkness as much as I did when I went to Clooney the first time. The death. The pitch dark, black. it was pitch black. I never experienced that because, you know, all the streets at home had street lights and we had electric light in the house and <laughs> all that running water and hot water and baths and all that kind of stuff, you know. And uh, when I got, when we got into cloning, I mean, the le the lamp was an oil lamp, you know. Uh, you lit a mantle and then put the funnel on top of it, you know. And the uh, fire was an open fire, with just turf burning and, you know, and the smell of turf. I'd never smelled turf burning before, so that was a really unusual experience, the smell of turf in the, around the house and the smell of smoke, of, you know, turf burning. And uh, there was only this bar, you know, across the fire. Never seen anything like that in my life because we had a, you know, a, a range at home, you know, and I thought everybody had a range, you know. And then, uh, what was it, Tommy, you know, Peter and Eamon got up. Or were they already up? I don't know. They were. They were up. And I couldn't understand the word they were saying. But, uh, May. And May. Well, I never, I never. <laughs> I don't know what means saying today, never mind. Then, so you can you can understand, you know. Mm -hmm. Man Duffy, I, I could understand her, all right. That's what I couldn't understand. 
you know. And she was all right. I thought she was making me welcome anyway, or trying to. Well, she was, yes. But, you know, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, an Englishman coming in, you know. No. An old English Protestant. An old English Protestant, no. Yeah. And then, Eamon uh, says, come with me, you know, she'll bring you out and I'll show you what's what like, you know. He said, you see all those hedges? <laughs> Mamma whispered to him. See all those fields? She says, they're yours, are they asking? I thought, what's wrong with this bloke? You know? Something wrong with him, you know? <laughs> Didn't know what to make of him at all. And then I realised there was no loo, like, you know? You know, you only got to the loo and just pull the chain and, you know, you're away. No such thing. I thought, my God, what am I going to do? Well, I didn't realise at that time that you had to find a field. My grandma showed me There's that. There's no light going out. There was no light going out. It was down the bottom of the garden, <laughs> down in the hay, near the hay shed, wherever it was then. I don't know how you got there. It went through mud <laughs> and gutter. No drains. Everything was thrown into the gully. Washed up outside, didn't you? I think. Yes. What outside? Washed pots outside. You did not. You did. Washed them in the bowl. <laughs> yeah, outside. And then the biggest experience I had was potatoes. That was another one. I couldn't, couldn't get hold of this at all. Potatoes in the jackets. I sat down to dinner, you know. I forget now. And then this big plate of potatoes on, was on the fire and I was looking at this cooking, you know. Next thing, they're all out onto this big tray on the middle of the table. And now I was used to have me. We always at all mum used to put, peel the potatoes and put them on a plate. And she was You know, for us, like, you know. As I get hold of this potato. And then I saw. <laughs> Um, it like getting the potatoes and started peeling them and they had potatoes on the plate before I'd even started on one potato, you know. So I thought, this is a right carry on. So it was a traumatic experience. That you enjoyed for a minute of it. I did after a while, yeah, when I settled in. But I mean, I was easily pleased, wasn't I? But she thought it was normal. You know, I wouldn't mind on she, I mean, she had the electric light here and all the facilities here and didn't... Well, why did I tell you you didn't tell anything about your house? <laughs> no answer to that, is there? But our house was normal. So was ours. In your eyes, yeah. Mm. That was my first experience. And then Grandad Duffy came out and... Mm. Welcome me, welcome me to Clooneem, and the next minute he got this melodeon going, you know, sort of playing it, you know, and good, you know. Well, he could put out something, he had a good, he had a good, uh, he had a good idea. A good idea of music. You know, he could pick up music very quick without music, you know, without having to read music or anything. Yeah. He could hum, start to hum it. He'd hum it and then he'd, he'd hum play it. it and then he'd play it. 
and then oh gee and then they all started and granddad started this melodium and then they all started doing house set and I said if they can do it I can do it and I did well I followed tried to follow the steps and not one too I thought I wasn't too bad anyway doing house set and in the end what about granddad he had to stop playing the melodium and you couldn't stop laughing I know he loved music, even though he never learned to play an instrument until he was over 70. And then he got a melodion. I brought him a melodion myself for a Christmas present when I was working in Atlone for £5.19 and sixpence. And I brought it home and never played a melodion before. Small, single key melodion. And uh, he studied it and learned it and enjoyed it for the rest of his life. He'd often talk about the pipes, the bagpipes, and he had a tongs, which was uh, a long tongs now to be about maybe 30 inches long for uh, fixing the fire. And he'd put that sitting on his knee and he'd, he'd use one arm of the tongs as the pipe, the, the pipe of the pipes. And he'd pretend to have a bag under his arm, then to a windbag and he'd pretend to be playing the pipes and he used to enjoy that. But so for that reason then, I, uh, that gave me the idea to buy him this melodge. And I remember I was coming home from Christmas with a, a friend of mine on the train and uh, he saw the parcel I had there. He says, you're bringing home presents. I'm bringing a, a melodge to my father. I <laughs> a melodge? Why in the name of God are you bringing a melodge to your father? That's ridiculous. But he didn't understand. He got great value out of that imagination. He was a dreamer. And he had a nice voice that I hadn't got. But he'd, uh, he'd get the tongues on his knee and he'd... He'd be tuning it up for a while. And then he'd go... Something like that. Now, that's not what, he, what it sounded like. But he had a whole lot of lovely tunes. He had a name for every tune and that was ever heard of. The Mason's Apron, the Stack of Barley, the Girl I Left Behind Me. Uh, oh, all the different tunes, I can't remember them now. He had slip jigs and horn pipes and uh, double jigs and reels. And... Uh, you know how they're, they're spoken for, you know, matchmaking, you know. So her father mentioned about this man that was interested in her, or his father was interested in the two. She uh, she dreamt about him, and she decided she wouldn't marry him. And her father was annoyed at that. So she said to herself, "Well, the next time they come up with someone, she said, I'll, I'm not going to go through this again.' She said, 'I'll I'll uh, go along with it.' So it happened to be daddy. They knew each other, like seeing each other at mass, and I don't think they ever went out together before they got married. I'm not sure, but I don't think so. The old house 
It was lovely. Mum used to have it lovely. It was whitewashed, you know, really white. And she used to had a flower bed down at the gable end, lovely flowers in it. And uh, she used to have white stones around. Yeah, it was lovely. Until it started to get go down, you know, really deteriorate. And then Mum was on about getting a new house and, and Daddy said what was good enough for my father was good enough for me. You know, he didn't want to leave. You can imagine, you know, where his father was and he was. He didn't want to leave it. You go in the front door into the kitchen, concrete floor. And the room to the left was a parlour, which is called the parlour. And the other little room was, was the bedroom. And then the little bed in the, what would you call it, off the kitchen. There's a front window and there was a back window. But there was a... What was it called the parlour? Because there was a bed in it as well. Uh, I can't rem remember more which was in it, but I know it used to be nice. I know in the kitchen she had a big, big sacred heart picture on the wall. And then over the table there was uh, other holy pictures and a sacred heart lamp, you know, that was always there. It was a picture of the holy family and the sacred heart, I think. It was a big kitchen, yeah. I remember they used to have dances in it. I can't remember much about the old house. I know I slept with mommy and daddy for a while. I had a sore finger once. I had a whittle on my finger. I couldn't bear the pain. But, you know, and mom, poor mommy, in the middle of the night, she was scooping potato. Put on just to make it cool, you know, to take the pain off. I was in their bed for a while. She had all the patience with me, poor lady. Daddy was sleeping away. But where did Chrissy sleep? I don't know. I slept with my three brothers, two brothers, John and Tommy. John is dead now, the Lord of But um, I, was put, I was the youngest brother, and I was put to bed early. And um, my mother had made this two wooden doors that just closed in the, just covered the bed. Just the bed was concealed in this little outshoot of the house. And um, uh, she had a small little window in it, and I could look out. And I could also listen to the tales. I could see the, the, the oil lamp burning. I can see it still in that particular place. And um, I often think since that it showed terrific light because everybody was so easily recognised with the light of a lamp. And um, my father smoking his pipe or playing the melodeon. Well, they just sat in a circle around the fire and talked, lit their pipes and talked, or sang a song or played the melodeon. Mike, Mike Cummins, Mike Grady, Mike Mannion, John Gerrit in that time, and of course all of us in our turns. As we went to bed earlier, the numbers were getting smaller, and they'd finish at about 11 o'clock and go home. <laughs> there was one. And when the neighbours would be visiting, um, 
when they'd be going home at night, one man would always say, well, I saw a ghost. And he described the ghost as just the shape of a person with a white sheet over them. And I was talking to him last night. It was near the graveyard. The graveyard was quite close to us. And um, of course, the other people did not believe him for one moment. But they decided to play a trick on him one night. And one man went back at the time he was supposed to be going home and put a sheet over his head. And he came along. And um, he just looked and thought, he said, well, there are two of you in it tonight. How is that? And the person who was trying to frighten him, he was the one that got a fright and he passed out. I remember another story, but I, I don't think this should go in either. Because it was his story to us. Um, he wore a, a black overcoat. And um, this man from Kilmina Hill, he was going over to confession in Mina. And Daddy was on his way home. And he met him. And he thought, this is my father's tale, and I'm sure Tommy will have told you. This man said, oh, good night, Father, because he thought, he, because the, the parish house, the parish priest's house was very near us, as you know. And he said, good night, Father. And he said, oh, good night. He said, where are you going to, this where are you going? And he said, well, I was going back to confession. And my father said, well, it's very late now to be going to confession. Don't you know when we finished at whatever time it was, six, seven o'clock? But if you kneel down there on the road, I'll hear your confession. And poor Willie O'Brien knelt down, took off his hat, blessed himself. And um, I don't know how far he went about telling his sins, but um, when he had finished, my father told him to, for your penance now, you'll go around Gurchin Lake three times on your knees. And then he was recognised, but he was a good runner, and he outran Willie O'Brien, otherwise there'll be trouble. So all men are on the fire, women didn't uh, didn't uh, visit in those days. They probably had other work to do at home, like baking bread, there was most of them at night, or knitting or making clothes or whatever. It was mostly men. A man's job finished usually at dark. Women's work was never finished. My mother would be sewing or darning. My sisters, some of them were working, probably baking, making bread or doing little things. I can see them back at the table, and um, there were little chores that they had to do, do the wash-up or whatever. I didn't take much notice. My father, when he finished work, when it got dark in the evening, he came in and he sat by the fire and entertained himself and us as well. My mother kept on working. She was sewing, knitting, darning socks in those days, um, repairing shoes. Or she could make furniture as well. And she, she was a great woman. She worked very, very hard. She could do anything. She was unique. I could say she was unique. I, I would think nobody else in the world could do what she could do. That's the truth. She could mend shoes that nobody else, no man you hardly could mend, because there was a lady, an English girl, who got married next door to us, and she did a very special pair of shoes, and she tried all them, all the covers in Westport, and they couldn't mend them, because they were gone from the, sole was gone from the upper. And my mother could make wax and hemp, and make up um, the thread, and sew the sole, and then put on half soles for her. She did that, with the last and uh, hammer. And um, she also did all our sewing, all ownership. I never got a ready-made 
any ready-made clothes in life after I got married. Never. And she'd never had a sewing machine. She did it by hand. And um, also, she made furniture. Lovely furniture. She couldn't afford to, to buy furniture, and she made it herself. Out of... The doors are the tea chests. Lovely, beautiful furniture, and nobody ever knew. I don't know how she did it, she was marvellous. She made side, lovely sideboards with two, two mirrors at the side and one at the centre. And little, like, null posts in between, keeping up. I can see it, yeah, it was lovely, beautiful. She, I don't know how she did everything. But um, there was no, at the time, there was no walk around about at the side of it, and she made up the concrete herself and put her lovely sidewalk in. And she put lovely window sills in with frames of timber herself. But she was excellent. No, she was the best. I, I, she was marvellous. I mean, she, she could do things that nobody else could do, I think. That was all men's work, sure. To make furniture and to put in the concrete and bring windowsills. She was men's work. My father couldn't, <laughs> couldn't do anything like that. But then he was good at um, basket work. He could make baskets and cleaves and things like that. I don't know. You can enjoy it, I suppose, you know. The, the fair day used to start at about 6 o'clock in the morning. And uh, my father would be up early almost in the middle of the night and he'd drive his few cattle into Westport or Newport as the case may be Westport usually and uh, he'd wait there for hours maybe until one o'clock and if he hadn't sold by one o'clock he'd take the cattle home again and he'd say well no look today I wasn't asked where I was going that meant that nobody even looked at the cattle, much less made an offer. And uh, I remember him telling me one time that it, uh, uh, the way his ex ways of expressing himself was, it used to go through me to meet your mother, he'd, call, he'd refer to my mammy as your mother, to meet my, your mother going into town, knowing that she needed money, and I driving the cattle home, I didn't nothing to give her. And uh, I mentioned that to my mother after, and she said, well, I remember that situation. All right, but she th I thought that the trouble was my own. I didn't think he was that much aware of how I felt. He didn't seem to worry at all. He'd come home from the fair, and after spending the whole day, maybe standing there, and... Uh, uh, as he'd say, not have, he wouldn't be asked where he was going. And still that night, he'd sit at the fire and he'd home tunes and he'd enjoy himself and be happy, the same as if he hadn't a worry in the world. Always, I remember about him. He had a wonderful. He had to do it himself, though. He hadn't put the draw himself. Poor John used to all that kind of work. But um, he's of a roasting fire, a big, huge, like a bonfire every night. He insisted on having a big fire and he'd bring me up and rub my hands and uh, put me sitting at the fire all the but he was very good, very kind. Well, he was older, you see, he was 20, nearly 20, well, he was 17 years older than that, that man, you know, and he was feeble, he, was, he used to walk slowly, but he always kept going, he wasn't lazy, he never went to the back, he wasn't able. I remember I used to go out um, shaking hay from here to the side, you know, and uh, 
when he'd get tired, he'd sit down and I'd sit down and we'd chat there and he'd tell me stories about Mammy and everything. And he told me that um, he's a serious mess and she'd lovely long hair down her back. In, in the church that time, there was two galleries, one opposite the other. And uh, he'd see her opposite on the opposite gallery, men's gallery and the women's gallery. And he'd see her, she'd lovely long hair down her back. And he, he used to admire her, you know. And um, that's it. I think there's a match. But it was him that approached her, I think. He used to see her in the church. That time it was all matchmaking, mostly, you know, mostly matchmaking. I, I thought that she had a boyfriend, that she was in love with somebody and that they wouldn't allow her to marry him. And then she decided that she'd marry whoever they'd want her to marry, you know. But I think they love him mostly on his side, I'd say. I imagine, by listening to Daddy out in the field, that Daddy was more in love with her than she was with him. I just felt that. Maybe I was wrong. She was good to him and everything, but... She often went over to my aunt and stayed a night there, and I would never do that now, and my husband, like, if wouldn't do it, like, you know. She'd go leave me, and he'd be lonely. When she'd leave me, he'd be very lonely on his own, you know. And he just thought that she, he was more in love than she was. Maybe I was wrong. And I remember when she was coming home, the evening she was coming home, Daddy got washed and shaved and put on his new suit. She was coming home. I remember that well. And she came back to the road and uh, she was told us where I had gone to town and everything. But it was a hot day and she, we went out the road meeting her off the bus. She was carrying her coat in her arm and she had no hat on her. And she thought she looked great, you know. And um, I passed some remarks to Mama Cumming. I said, you know, didn't she look great? And he said, yeah, he said she has a grand carriage. So I think, you know... I think they were very happy most times in each other's company, you know. I can't remember Mammy before before Chris was born. Isn't that funny? And I didn't know she was going to have the baby. And I was six. Well, of course, I wouldn't, you wouldn't know then, I suppose. And she was born at night. And me and I were awake in the little room. I don't know where Ellen and Maggie was at the time. They're dead. But Daddy come down to hang up his overcoat in the wardrobe. And he said, you've got a little sister. I said, where? He said, we have, you have a little sister. No, we have, you have a little baby, we have another baby or something. And May said, is it a girl or a boy? And he said, a girl. And I said, how do you know? <laughs> And he said, hold your tongue, you, and go to sleep. <laughs> and myself and May started laughing. And that's all in the morning then. We never got up to see the baby or anything. But she had got jaundice. She was really yellow. And she had the funniest little nose when we seen her in the morning. I couldn't, you know, I didn't know where she came from or nothing. Well, I couldn't understand why Mammy was in bed with long with her. <laughs> you know, and how was it yesterday we knew nothing? We got this little baby all of a sudden, you know, and didn't know. My father's mother died at childbirth, leaving nine children, and it's, it's impossible to imagine how his father survived and uh, maintained the, the, uh, that family of nine children without any help. There was no help whatsoever. 
he had no regular income. Neither had my father any regular income. When I was growing up, there was no income, except when we'd sell a couple of cattle or a few pigs or things like that. And uh, my mother often uh, kept the house going, as she'd say, with butter and eggs. I suppose my grandfather had an awful struggle to feed the family. And uh, Mary Ann was the, the oldest of the four or five girls. And uh, she got married quite young. And she had one son. But her husband died around the time of the birth of her son. And the son was sent to Cluning and was reared there. And then he went to America and never returned. Then Helen was the second eldest girl. So she took the place of, of the mother. As a result, uh, when the mother died, I think Ellen, who was about 12 years of age at the time, she bore the brunt of that uh, misfortune. And she took the place of the mother and looked after all her, her brothers and sisters, including, uh, in addition then, she had the nephew, uh, Mary Ann's son, Pat Ludden. He grew up with, more or less, he was about, even though he was a nephew, I think he was about the same age as my father. Then Pat Ludden went to America, and that left the three, Ellen, Maggie, and my father, Peter. And uh, they obviously made an arrangement whereby my father would become the sole owner of the property, and the two sisters would be compensated for their share by being paid what was known as a fortune. And our prospects of getting married without a dowry was nil. So he felt, my father felt, that if his two sisters were dowry, he discharged his responsibility towards them and they would get married. And then he was free, more or less, to get married because uh, he hadn't much hope of getting married with two sisters. He couldn't very well bring in his new wife with two sisters already there. It was a recipe for trouble. So he agreed to, as he would say, fortune me two sisters. She hadn't her dowry until she was too old. She must have been 50, perhaps, when she got her dowry or in her late 40s. By the time my father had... He was, he was 44 and she was six or seven years older. And he was 44 when he got married. And it was only shortly before that that he succeeded in accumulating a fortune for his two sisters, as he often repeated. She pointed out a man to me one time that she was interested in, and she told me... She told me about um, that she was interested in this man and that they were great friends. Uh, I don't know much about him now, but I remember him to see. I was very young at the time. Well, I suppose it was nine or ten. But, uh, she did say, I remember her words, was that he'd have married me without a penny. And then I remember my uncle, Peter, fixing me, trying to fix me up with this um, policeman. We were out walking one day and... With Uncle Peter, it was, yes. And uh, this policeman, I knew him actually, the policeman, because he, he, I, w I worked in Westport and he worked there. And um, he came along on his bike and he, he passed us along and I said hello. Mm -hmm. And then he, he came up again and passed up again. And Uncle Peter said, Do you know that uh, 
policeman and I said, yeah, I said, I, he works in Westport. And he said, I um, wonder why he's, why he's going back and forth, you know. And he, he, want, he wanted to fix me with another policeman. Try, he tried to get to introduce me to him, you know. I didn't. I, I said I don't. I don't want to. I don't. I don't even like him. I said for goodness' sake. It was different. It was just a, a suggestion. It wasn't a um, thing, you know. You've got to. Well, I'm not sure. I won't. Well, as I say, I used to write a kit, and she 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 liked it in these. So now she talked me into going over anyway. I told May. And the only time I could go, and Bridgie had to go up to Galway, and Mammy went with her. And I said, I couldn't go if Mammy was there. I said, I'd have to be gone when she'd come. And that was awful hard, you know. I didn't tell Daddy or John. So May got, bought me some clothes and everything, and it was awful good to me. And I went off. Just terrible. And I don't know, that that day or the next day, Mamma was coming home, and she told me after that she was going into Uncle Thomas and she met Aunt Bridges, Lily, and she just said, Lena, Nona, Sam, and I've gone to England. And your Mamma nearly died. John wanted to come to the station to bring me home, but I had gone. And Daddy was really upset. It took me a long time to get over it. We were very close, very, very close. And I thought it was a, it was a horrible thing to do without saying go- I couldn't say goodbye. If I had to say goodbye to her, I couldn't go. <laughs> I was afraid they wouldn't forgive me, you know, but they did, of course. I think because the fact that I was at home and that I was entitled to some, if I had stayed there, you know, I'd have been entitled to some money or whatever because I was there until I was nearly 22. If I had stayed, you know, but I think it was fate that took me away, I don't know. He gave me forty pounds which and I I thought that he was giving me the earth I didn't want to take it because I couldn't imagine how he had it and he he was in tears that morning because uh, it wasn't more, you know, and tried to pay time on my only Because <laughs> we didn't have much help. Here, Lena Grau, he said, and you deserve a lot more. You know, he was upset. Which I thought was lovely, because I never, ever expected it. Well, I didn't even dream of it. I know May, May was very good, and she made a wedding cake and everything, you know. She did a lot. She was very good to me. I don't know if I told May or not now about that. I was embarrassed because I didn't feel I, I deserved it, you know. So I, I don't think I told anyone about it, I'm not sure. 
I suppose Mama knew, like, you know. But because I left, I didn't think, oh, it didn't dawn on me that I get anything, I deserve anything, you know. I bought, um, when I was working, I think my first wage, I bought a gramophone. And I, I took it down, we called it a gramophone then, down to our bedroom. And um, I bought this lov lovely reco um, record, you call it, isn't it? And it was, the, it was called The Banks of My Own Lovely Lee. So I was out late, I was at, at a dance or something. I bought the record in town and then I went straight on to the dance and <clears throat> I didn't come in until one o'clock and I was really worried coming in that late. So I remember coming in the back door and uh, going down, thinking that nobody heard me, going down to the bedroom and I couldn't resist playing my record even though it was one o'clock or half past in the morning. So I put it on and I thought very, very low. And the next thing... I heard my dad from the other room saying, Eileen, can you raise that a bit? I always remember that. That's one thing that will always stay in my memory because I thought if they heard me now coming in at one o'clock, I'd get into trouble. But that was, that's all I heard from him. Eileen, will you raise that? And at one o'clock in the morning, I played it and I had to as loud and thank God. I remember oftentimes um, we, uh, in the evening, maybe four o'clock in the evening, my mother would ask me to bring out some tea to my father in the field, and I wouldn't know what field to be in, but I had to stop and listen, and you could listen, hear the, the sharpening of the scythe with the side stone, you could hear it in the distance, and it had such a, a rhythm, it never seemed to miss a beat, just the same rhythm all the time. I suppose my first homecoming from the Midlands, I remember that quite clearly. Uh, John met me at the station with Lurton Weston. He had a second bike, however, he got it up there and we cycled home. And um, it was a great welcome for me. And I felt too that it meant a lot to them that I was going home. And of course, realising now as a parent myself, I'd love to see was there any. In those days, you go home twice a year. I'd be anxious to see them and express my delight or whatever it was in their, their appearance, number one, and to see them smile and to hear their voice again. I suppose those days there was no phones. You must remember that only by letter there was no phones. And um, um, the homecomings was very, very important. But um, the phone meant so much. But the first time I, 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 I did speak to her mother, she said, it's great to hear your breath again, mind you, doesn't my voice, to hear my breathing again. I remember saying that. So um, it was a different age, wasn't it? Well, I, I remember um, the Wednesday before he died. It was a really, really, it was 1957, and it was the warmest oh, May in history. Oh, the hair biting up through the room. Yeah, and I remember we, the girls are home from England, and um, we'd be... I, I was working in the time in Westport, they used to close a half day Wednesday, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't wait for my friends. 
that we, I thought he'd be dead by the time I go home. And I wouldn't wait for my friends to, to be home. We started cycling home together and I remember getting home as quick as ever I could, got home and going down and it was, oh, it was roast. And uh, I left the bike at the, out on the road at the gate and I went in around the back of the house without anybody knowing they were in the kitchen. And I went down to the room and Daddy was propped up in bed with a load of pillows. And he was, uh, he was humming away, strange kind of singing, you know. And he was staring up at the ceiling. And he did, I can still see his eyes were all glazed, you know, you'd know, he was, and the sweat was rolling out. Really clammy, cold sweat, you know. And I remember I was so warm and he was so weak. And he was there away, humming, looking up at the ceiling. And I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, Daddy, for God's sake, you know, stop singing and, and spare your energy, you know, not to be used up all your energy, you're, you're so weak. And he took a while, he turned around, and he took a little while to turn around, he looked up into my face. He was trying to register who it was, he said. So he said to me, uh, he looked like, he said, for God's sake, Chrissy, he said, do you not realise that the angels and saints are singing and dancing this minute in heaven? I know what we do. The morning my father died was in May the 17th, <coughs> and I went, I went out the hill, around the hills, at five o'clock in the morning, thinking, and uh, at different places in the fields, I visited them because I knew what I'd find. My father smoked a pipe, and he'd always, he'd, he mightn't have matches, but he preferred to bring just a half-burden sort of turf. He'd bring it with him out into the field, and another sort of turf, and he'd put the two of them together. And he always leave them in the same place. And every hour, probably, he'd go back and he'd light the pipe. And he had little bits of paper folded in his pocket, and they're folded always in a certain way, kind of a little triangle. And he'd light the pipe with that. After a very breezy day, he'd break off a bit of a coal and put it on top of the pipe. But the morning he died, I went out the hills, and I knew the exact places, and I could still see the <coughs> the ground a bit scorched where his little fires were. And uh, needless to say, Mary, now I shed a tear. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.